Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is our friend, Hugo Lindgren. And it's just going to be me and Hugo today, and we're going to talk about two things. One is the Biden tax plan. I wrote my most recent column for Fast Company uh, endorsing the tax plan and saying that uh, even though it will cost me a lot of money, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, and then we're going to touch on the New York City mayor's race and kind of where the Andrew Yang campaign stands. Um, so, Hugo, uh, thanks for coming, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Bradley. Sure. Um, no problem. <laughs> um, so we're going to we're going to talk mostly about your column, the, the Fast Company piece today. Um, and let's just lay it out for readers who might not have read it yet. You, the basic thrust of it is that the, the tax plan. Some of this podcast doesn't sort of base their day around reading my column the minute it, it hits the uh, the wires. Well, no, I think they do. But, you know, <laughs> of course. <laughs> So the main the, the main thrust of the column is that though the tax plan is bad for you personally, you consider it good for the country, so you're in favor of it. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Just sure. I mean, look, I, I I wrote it specifically because you know when Biden proposed it, it was very clear that you were going to have the the typical alignment, which is everyone on the left saying how great it is and how we need to raise taxes and how people who make a lot of money are evil and here are all these good causes we could fund. Um, and the people on the right, sort of typical arguments against, you know, this is only going to hurt the economy uh, and, and be money that's wasted by the government. So and, and it felt to me that they're both very shallow perspectives. Uh, I do believe that, that at least some on the left and right genuinely hold those perspectives. But I think these are people who are kind of generally like to be told how to think and are not particularly thoughtful. Um, and uh, to me, it, it's pretty clear that um, one, you know, the left or right wing notion of the appropriate role of government is is very flawed. Two, as someone who has spent, you know, time working in city government, state government, federal government, executive branch, legislative branch, someone who's got uh, a fund and a, a bunch of other di- different types of private sector businesses, someone who has a foundation and tries to impact uh, the world uh, through philanthropy. Uh, if you put all that together, to me, the answer is they're both wrong. And there are uh, roles that are important for government and that can't be done by individuals. There are programs and ideas that government is good at administering, and there are a lot of things that government is not good at administering. Um, and so I tried to look at that in the context of the column uh, and say, given all of that, and as someone who will you know, clearly get hit very hard by the Biden tax increases if they were to double the capital gains tax, um, that doubles a huge percentage of my total taxes. Um, but, uh, when I think about what I would do with the money as opposed to, uh, what it would hopefully be used for if it is spent wisely, which is an open question that ultimately was better for society, for me and my peers to pay the extra money. What specifically other than the sort of determination to, to, you know, to address some of the major problems of the country, particularly the income gap, but what specifically do you like about Biden's spending priority? Yeah. Um, a, a few things. So one is. It seems that the countries who have their act together and have uh, a little less inequality um, have figured just some basic things out around family structure, right? Child care, uh, health care, um, paid leave, uh, you know, really preschool, like pretty basic stuff that it's pretty clear that if, if you give kids the chance to start school at the age of three, and if a family has health care and doesn't have to go without it or, or go to the emergency room every time that they need you know, anything, um, and if uh, people can you know, have children and then return back to the workforce in a way that, that they're not 
risking losing their job if they take more than a, a week or two off, um, that we would just be better off for it overall. And some of that requires income redistribution and shifts. And some of that shift would be coming from people like me into other people. Um, but just in looking at the relative, you know, kind of cost benefit of it. Okay, so let's say that that there's, you know, more money left over in, in my pay after taxes because the Biden tax plan failed. What will I do with it? I'll give it away. So now we're just having competing causes of what, whether the money that I give away is is more efficient than the government programs that the Biden tax plan would fund. Or I'd spend it on stuff, which is not entirely hollow because it, that's what propels the economy and, and that's people's jobs uh, rely on that. Um, or I'd leave more money for my kids. All of those. Right, wait, I need to cut you off there because you're actually leaving yeah. out a pretty substantial piece of where your money would go, right? Which is what's that? Which is into investment, right? So you'd invest in more companies, and and no, see, I don't, I don't think that that's the case. Like I, my fund structure, and that to me, that's an important argument to make here. To people who don't want to pay more taxes, that's their argument. That oh, well, we won't, uh, we won't invest as much. You'll have less new new company creation, less innovation. And that old overall really hurts the economy and, and people's opportunities. If I believe that this would significantly reduce my investment uh, activity, uh, I might have a different view of the tax plan. But it's not. I have I have a fund structure. We raise a certain amount of money. We plan to make a certain amount of investments with that money over a several several year period. Um, you know, we're constantly raising new venture funds, and, and it's not like all of a sudden out of fund three. I'm going to only do 19 deals instead of 26 deals because the tax rate went up. Like that's just not how it works for my fund or anyone's fund. So, right. but but you you have less money available to invest in these things, and and no, I don't because Hugo, those are my taxes. The money that I use to invest in technology startups come from my limited partners, right? And if they've given me, let's just use round numbers, 100 million dollars to invest in tech startups. I get 20% of the profits effectively is, is how the, the fund model works. If after I get that 20%, whether I, there's half left over after taxes or 40% left over or 60% left over, that's my personal income, my personal giving. But the fund investments have already been made and determined either way. Right. But the but the but the extra money that you'd make, what would you do with it? I mean, you, you're not. That's why I went through it. I would I would either. One, spend it on stuff, which I don't think is by definition bad, because when you're spending it on stuff, even if it's really stupid shit, people's companies and jobs still rely on on that economic activity. Two, I'd give it away. So probably some charity, I, charities will lose out as a result of this. But in theory, at least, the benefit of what's being done through the higher taxes outweighs the benefit of what the money to charity would do. Or three, you know, less for savings, trusts, whatever. Um, and look, you know, you can make a valid argument on behalf of any of those three things. And I think that's what people who don't want to pay the more money try to do. Um, but the notion that fundamentally private equity funds, venture capital funds, hedge funds uh, are going to change their investment strategy um, because taxes are going up. That's just not true. Well, it's not that they changed their strategy. It's that there would be overall less money available for those funds. If you if you increase the taxes, I mean, the, the percentage that people spend on even extremely rich people 
that they spend on like personal consumption is relatively low. So the right. money is going in to fund new companies. And so let, let me let me take a hypothetical. So there's a person who works, you know, a lot of people who start companies, some, you know, come right out of college or don't even go to college and start companies, but a lot of them work for very successful companies, right? I know you have some, we talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago who worked at Apple for years and then started a really successful, uh, started Latch, right? So he, yeah. he works at Apple. Okay, so let's let's take the next generation of that guy. They work at Apple, they make a really nice big salary there. They have a really comfortable life. They have a pretty good idea of something to start. And they're looking at the risk reward ratio of whether they should start this company or they should just continue their comfortable life working for this hugely successful company, drawing a really nice big salary. They look at they look at the risk reward. They're like, well, you know, startups are pretty risky just generally, right? Now my my uh, my reward is cut in half essentially by the by the new taxes. In, in, in California, again, who knows what the what the final math will be on the on the on the tax hike, but but the numbers are talking about right now the, the, the total takeaway for, for capital gains in California will be about fifty percent, right? So you basically cut in half the potential reward for that guy or that woman to start a company. That will absolutely yeah yeah I mean he, there, there's 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 two two problems I think with that argument okay. I mean it's 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 totally irrational but one um, human nature so if you are an entrepreneur it's like being an artist or people who run for office or a, any profession where people are just driven to do it by things outside of pure cost benefit analysis. And I think that if you're the kind of person who creates, like, I, I don't need any more money, and yet I keep creating new companies, um, not because I think that the extra income will really change my life in any meaningful way, it won't, but because I love starting companies in and of itself. And so that's part of who I am. And I think that's part of every true entrepreneur. So if you're the kind of person that makes the decision ultimately not to do it because of marginal tax rate changes, you were never going to do it in the first place. You, you're you, a lot of people like the notion that they are risk takers and entrepreneurs and business creators, but the number of people who actually can do it uh, is much much smaller than that. So you're arguing that financial incentives do do not make a difference for entrepreneurs. That's your. I think it is. I, yeah, I I think true entrepreneurs need to create regard. It's like like I said, it's like being an artist. You know, artists don't make art or not make art based on the tax rate of, of the gallery what their gallery pays. You know, they they make art because they have to. They can't not make it. And I think that's true. And I think the entrepreneurs listening to this right now will, will agree with that. I think that's true for real entrepreneurs. Well, I think entrepreneurs would agree with it because they have this heightened sense of themselves as special people. Um, but well, our- you know what, Hugo? Let, let's, in, in, in fairness, if you can have an idea in your head and turn it into a functioning actual reality that people's now jobs uh, are, are to do this thing and you have convinced people to give you money and created a company and created a product or service uh, and changed uh, human behavior and everything else, you know what, you kind of are special because that's a lot harder to do than just working for somebody else. Um, what do you not like about Biden's spending priorities? What What's what's in the plan that makes yeah. you think like, oh my God, this literally is the federal government on steroids and uh, we're gonna regret going down this path? Yeah, well, I mean, look, it, to, to me, it's it's a little more nuanced of a question, which is, you know, I, I haven't gone through all $1.8 trillion or whatever the number is in new spending and sort of said, okay, I'm for this, I'm against that, um, because that's, that's what Congress will do. Um, so the final bill will not look a ton like what the uh, what the 
proposal looks like. But it, it's more to me, le- less around, hey, I think this spending for this type of community health care or broadband is is not going to work. And it's more that the one of the big problems on the left is there's this very naive and false assumption that if you spend government money on something and you appropriate money to something and create a program, you've solved the problem. And, you know, the notion of kind of if you have lots of white papers with lots of bullet points um, and enough people who went to Yale sitting in the room together, uh, you'll fix everything. And what you may be able to do is fix it on paper, but then it all is only as good as the actual implementation. So, for example, as, as you know, you know, we fund and run lots of different campaigns around things like school, universal school breakfast, school lunch, uh, programs for co- hunger, programs for seniors, for college kids, all of that. Um, a lot of those policies are determined in Washington and are, you know, we're, we're working on the reauthorization of the Childhood uh, Nutrition Act right now. Um, so that's important. But then ultimately, all that does is sort of move pieces of paper from one pile to another in, in the District of Columbia. And then whether or not kids are getting food at this individual school level depends on execution. Um, and the left just generally, generally, I think because they've never actually like created businesses or jobs or made payroll on their own, has no concept whatsoever of operations and execution or anything else. Um, and I'm picking on the left here because they'll feel like they solved the problem just by passing the taxes. And because I'm willing to agree with them on paying the taxes, um, I then don't want to see all this money that's not going to go to other things that I could spend it on. Um, to be kind of intended for good things, but then ultimately wasted because no one paid attention to the actual execution of the program itself. So what worries me is that Biden and his team will feel like they solved the problem if they pass the bill. No one there, they're all career political people. No one's ever run a real company other than like some sort of political consulting firm. Um, and uh, they're not going to focus on the piece that matters even more than, than the idea itself. Or do you feel confident there, there are enough new ideas in the spending plan? Are there things in there you've seen people talk about or, or that, that feel like a real a, a good yeah. kind of risk for the, for the government to be, to be making? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, don't, I, think, I don't know if they're like new as opposed to things that progressives have had on the wish list for a while. But, you know, the notion of things like child care and paid leave uh, and help paying for insurance premiums and things like that, I, I mean, they're a, pretty basic holes in society that need obviously need to be fixed. And B, those are programs that have succeeded in lots of other places. So it, it, replicating a lot of that stuff, they're not, so they don't feel like new ideas to you or me because people have been talking about them for a long time. But look, you know, we had four years of Trump. And, you know, for those listeners who listened to the uh, podcast we did on the 800-page Obama book, he didn't accomplish that much, right? Really historic figure, great human being, got a few big things done. But like, it's not like he was able to really change the whole paradigm in a permanent way on things like paid leave or child care or childhood hunger or anything else. You know, ACA was a big deal, but even that clearly had a lot of holes and flaws in it. So, it, and then before that, you had eight years of Bush. So it's just been a long time since you had anyone with both the desire and ability to enact some of this. One thing that I'm curious about is on this, you know, in the last few months on this show, we've talked to economists who helped us kind of understand that the federal government is not as constrained on borrowing as we sort of had spent the last our entire lifetimes really thinking it was. Um, yeah. And 
so that there was like this kind of flexibility in terms of spending that that uh, you know that that enables us to do a lot of these 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 massive government plans. Um, but now that's quickly followed up by these you know pretty significant tax hikes. Is that a confusing kind of signal um, or, or mixed signals to send? I mean, it, it feels it feels weird to me. Either we either we can borrow a lot more, um, or we need to tax to pay for all these things. What, what's the? I mean, our, our, I guess we're, I guess we're. Well, I mean, I, look, I, I I would assume that some of the economists that we've talked to would say, you know, e- even if they believe that borrowing is less of a problem than we had been led to believe up until now. Um, you still need a certain amount of revenue to pay for a certain amount of spending or even just to support the borrowing, right, just to pay the interest. So um, as a result, I would suspect that that the more liberal economists would say, yeah, this is good because we need to have a mix of new revenue um, and more debt in order to pay for the things that really matter. And people who are more on the right would say, uh, we're going to waste the money in most of these programs and we're taking out of the economy where it could do a lot more good. Um, the, the, the one place where I think personally, and maybe this is a good segue into Yang, um, I, I think we could be a lot more effective is if we, instead of just assuming it was one or the other, either government would solve the problem or the market would solve the problem, that if we said, well, here's what government's good at and here's what it's not good at, right? And so, look, things that require collective action, building a road, mounting an army, um, you know, opening a school, you know, th- that tends to require more than one or even a group of people, and that's where government comes in handy, right? But then there's a lot of other things like potentially paid leave and childcare and healthcare, a lot of the stuff I just talked about that, you know, I, I think the Biden plan can help a lot of people, but could you convince me that uh, keep the tax increases exactly as, as planned, but just give people a cash payment um, and let them figure out how to spend it on childcare, you know, preschool, health premiums, whatever else. Yeah. I mean, I, I do have more faith in the, in the ability of an individual person to make the right decisions for themselves and their families than some giant government bureaucracy. Before we get to Yang, I want to ask you one more question that's this kind of eternal political problem for New York City and state and something that you've had direct experience with working for Chuck Schumer and working for, for Mayor Bloomberg. Um, the New York City and New York State get uh, a far lower uh, a percentage on tax dollars returned to the state by the federal government. I, I just looked up yeah. the figures. So New York, I think it's the state gets 90 cents on the dollar. The national average, interestingly, is more than a dollar. It's it's a dollar and 21 cents. Uh, Mitch McConnell's home state of Kentucky gets more than $2 back for every dollar it sends to Washington. I, I think in the in this era of higher taxes, it's 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 obviously uh, important for, for that imbalance to be sort of addressed. What's the key to changing that? I, I, like I said, you've, you've obviously worked directly on this. Um, is, is this is this a problem that, that we can make progress yeah, on? I think it's a problem that we can look. I think it's a problem caused by a few things. Some of it is political imbalance. You mentioned Kentucky. Mitch McConnell has been the Senate Majority Leader for much of the last twenty years, um, and is incredibly skilled and shameless at saying, even if I oppose government spending generally, I'm going to grab as much of it as I possibly can from my home state so that I, I can make people happy. So when I run for re-election, I can count on their support, right? No one is accusing him of being personally or intellectually honest in any way. Um, but uh, if, if you're from a state where you really champion government spending, then even if you want to secure more of it for your home state, it's much harder for you to say, well, I don't want poor people in the holler in Kentucky to have access to food or childcare or healthcare, right? So de- by definition, 
if you're coming into Congress with the perspective of let's spend a lot more, uh, then your your state in some ways is already disadvantaged because you're for spending money everywhere. And then on top of that, you know, you are a less likely to cut deals that would threaten a whole program just so that your state or district can get more money um, because you still care about those kids in Kentucky or wherever it is. So you're you're less ruthless and skilled in the negotiations than a Mitch McConnell is. And then on top of all that, it's kind of relative political power. So if you look at New York as an example, one, um, now that Chuck Schumer's majority leader, I bet we will start to see uh, a lot more come back. But, you know, we haven't had a New Yorker in a position of power in, in a long time. The last time the Democrats had a majority leader, I think it was Harry Reid, uh, and Nevada did quite well. So um, part of it is the having leaders, uh, having elected officials and leadership from your area. Part of it is kind of the underlying nature uh, of your view of government in the first place. You know, and then the third part is, I think that there's become a, on the left at least, uh, less concern for local well-being and more for national ideology. So the New York Times editorial the other day uh, opposing the reinstatement of the SALT deduction was, was a very good example of this, right? So uh, in the 2017 Trump tax bill, Republicans controlled Congress through the bu- same budget reconciliation process that the Democrats are using now. They were able to enact some really big tax increase uh, decreases and changes, and, and one of those was to limit the state and local tax deduction uh, to $10,000. So that's something that in high uh, tax cities and states was a way to reduce your federal tax bill commensurately. So it made the burden of the local state taxes a a little less painful. There are a bunch of members of Congress from New York and New Jersey, uh, led by uh, our friend and my brother-in-law, Josh Gottheimer, who are uh, saying, look, we're not going to vote for these new tax plans and infrastructure bills unless the SALT deduction is restored to what it used to be. You know, the Republicans took it away. The Democrats should bring it back. Um, And the Times, even though it would be incredibly important and helpful for New York, and, you know, the word New York is in the name of the Times, um, they ran out of bashing Josh and opposing it and saying, no, 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 you know, we want to tax the rich as much as possible. And we want to have as many government revenues for as much spending as possible. And the well-being specifically of New York City or New York State or the New York metropolitan area is no longer our concern or problem, right? Um, you, you see that in, in a lot of the local coverage of the mayor's race uh, from places like the Times, where it's clear that both on the editorial side and the news side, um, the desire to be seen is sort of the most woke as possible when you go to your local bar in Prospect Heights, um, or the desire to advance through the newspaper uh, as quickly as possible now is run around displaying the right ideological adherence, not uh, a sophisticated understanding of, of the local politics and issues or needs. And so as a result, you know, New York in some ways only has two local papers now, the, the Post and the Daily News in terms of, of big dailies. The Times is really not in any way a New York paper. And the Journal tries, but it's it's still, you know, kind of an afterthought. All right. We're going to that. That's a good segue to Yang, too. But I want to ask one more question, because when when. When Bob Greenlee was on the podcast the other day uh, talking about infrastructure spending, um, he, he, he mentioned that one of his concerns was that a lot of the spending was, was focused on, I think the term he used was old paradigms. Um, and th- th- I, that kind of stuck in my mind because I was thinking like, wow, New York City is like literally the world capital of old paradigms, right? Um, I mean, things that, that are essential to the operating of the city, like 
say the subway or or the incredible stock of public housing we have that needs tons of new investment in order to be maintained and properly modernized you know i mean we're the the these giant housing projects that are around the city are are really at the end of their natural life cycle um and yet you know hundreds of thousands of people depend on them and people cannot be relocated very easily um i mean it's just a huge looming problem um but and yet we need to you know we do need to spend money on these things is that a is that a I guess I'm curious, what's your take on these old paradigms? What kind of disadvantage does this put New York in, in terms of, in terms of spending priorities? Um, I mean, look, this is the, uh, I guess in some ways, the, the downside of being older, which is, you know, New York has as much old infrastructure as anyone, right? We've got, I mean, you know, New York City is a city of islands, right? You know, the Manhattan's an island, Staten Island's an island, Brooklyn and Queens Long Island is an island. Um, so we have lots of bridges and lots of tunnels, right? And, you know, a lot of those sort of low-tech needs are still very, very prominent because it's how we get in and out of everywhere. And if the tunnel collapsed or the bridge collapsed, a lot of people would die. Um, the gateway tunnel, which is not a tunnel that you can drive through, but it's the rail tunnels that are used uh, to get from New Jersey to New York, which is actually what connects New York City to the rest of the U.S. mainland, um, are crumbling. And if those were to be at a place where they were too unsafe to use, all uh, East Coast traffic would shut down for Amtrak um, and a huge amount of commerce. Uh, so um, New York has a lot of needs. And as a result, um, because you know Gateway and the problems are so expensive, they need tens of billions of dollars, it means that you know you, they're going to have to agree to a lot of stuff that either maybe isn't the most efficient way to spend money in some other, like a bridge to nowhere in Alaska, or we'll just have to overfund places like Kentucky, because keep in mind, if the Democrats are going to pass this bill on party lines, they're going to need all 50 votes in the Senate, which means all 50 senators have the ability to threaten whatever they want and say, I need this thing in my uh, district or state funded. Um, and so the, what you're describing, Hugo, to me is in order to get the critical stuff done, um, you're going to have to include a lot of nonsense, too. All right, let's get to Yang. Uh just tell us where we are in the campaign. Uh, sure. what, what's the what's the general mood? What's the outlook? How are things unfolding according to the way you thought they were? What, what what's what's been surprising to you? What's been uh, going according to plan? All right. So today is we're recording this on May fifth. So the the election is seven weeks uh, from yesterday. So look, uh, a few things. One, if the election were held today, we would win. Two, uh, I'd far rather be us than any other candidate. Three, um, anyone less than 50 days out from an election, there's just a level of anxiety that has set in. Um, and I certainly feel that. And I, I kind of don't really miss that. I kind of forgot about that a little bit. Um, Wait, you don't miss that? Or do you find it kind of energizing? More the latter. And partly because in this case, I've also become the subject and the, the target on the left. So... Um, it's, it's, I'm getting, you know, I, I get the anxiety and energy and lots of unwanted attention. Um, so you put all those things together and it's, it's not the most fun thing I've ever done, but look, I mean, the reason why we chose to support Andrew Yang is we looked at the people running for mayor and the answer was they just weren't good enough. Right. Uh, Scott Stringer, even before his accused, you know, being accused of sexual assault is a career politician who believes in nothing other than his own ambition. Um, and has never run anything successfully at all. Eric Adams, another career politician, you know, borough president's not even a real job, um, and all kinds of 
allegations of corruption dodging him and everything he's ever done, neither of those people really should be mayor. They would both do a, a, as potentially bad of a job as Bill de Blasio did. And the other candidates are either uh, way, way, way too far um, to the left and ideological and in no way uh, equipped to actually run uh, the city. Um, or, you know, you have some people like Sean Donovan or Catherine Garcia who, who are reasonably qualified, but they're politically lackluster, right? And they're stuck at 3%, 5%, 7% of the polls. They're not viable candidates. So you, you put all that together and there was a huge hole. And Andrew, I think, in many ways, sees governing in a way that was similar in the role of, of being mayor to, to how Mike Bloomberg did, which is it, the, the role of the city is not purely as an ideological instrument. It, it's to deliver a, a clean, safe, well-run template that makes businesses want to be here, makes tourists want to be here, makes new companies want to start here, makes older companies want to stay here. Um, and how do you do that? You know, you start off through good management, right? And what Mike did that really worked is he hired the most talented people he could possibly find. He made them hire solely based on talent. Um, Gate created a culture where they had the opportunity to take risks and come up with big ideas and even fail. Uh, and that was okay. And as a result, you know, incredible numbers of interesting things happened because you created a, an environment, a culture where that could I think Yang is the only candidate who, A, would create a culture like that, and B, could create a culture like that, because um, I think he can attract talent from all over the country. And if we do manage to win basically without many or any endorsements, which has been the case so far from kind of the local political establishment, it means you walk in totally debt-free. You don't owe anyone anything, um, and you don't have to worry about anything other than just just doing the right thing in every single case. So if if we can hang on and win... Um, because the people felt the visceral connection with Andrew, even though the institutional levers of power are very threatened by him. And that includes print reporters, pundits, you know, advocates, union officials, elected officials. You know, in, in a way, if someone who is not part of your system has never been part of your system, is a New Yorker, but not part of your political system, enters the race at the last possible second. And, and just communicates directly with the voters, ignoring all of the traditional levers and mechanisms and wins, what does that say about you? It says that you're not nearly as important as you think you are. It means that, you know, so much of your self-worth is wrapped up in your influence and your power. And the reality is you don't have that much because if you did, the guy that you tried to stop from winning wouldn't have won. So if Andrew does hang on and win, it's a huge repudiation to the political class in New York City, and it really exposes them for just being completely behind the time, not unlike kind of Bob's problem point before on sort of old legacy infrastructure, um, same kind of thing. So um, so look, I'm I am both anxious and excited because I have made a bet that one, um, Yang will be a much better mayor than the other candidates, and two, that connecting viscerally with voters is far more important these days than having you know, the right third party tell voters who to vote for, right? I don't think people still want to be told by a union or a politician or a newspaper, here's how to think. Uh, they don't need that anymore in the age of technology that we're now in. So look, I'm making the bet that that's going to be right. And that as a result, we're going to win this election and be able to really govern uh, in a new and different way. Um, we'll find out in seven weeks if I'm right. Is that you used it a couple times? The term sort of hang on and win. Um, obviously, if you have the lead, that that makes sense. Um, but but what is the opportunity for for Yang over the next several weeks 
to do more than hang on, but to, to add. Yeah, so look, we'll see. So the, the first thing is we're, we're talking in the absence of data because while there has been polling in the race, um, last week, as some of the listeners will know, uh, New York City controller Scott Stringer was accused of sexually assaulting uh, a woman who worked on his uh, 2001 campaign for a public advocate. Um, he's denied it. She has filed charges with the state attorney general. Um, you know, we'll time, the investigations will determine whether or not, you know, Mr. Stringer did commit sexual assault. And if so, what what other p- potential penalties he faces. But his campaign is pretty much destroyed. Um, so Scott Stringer was either in second or third, depending on most of the polls. Um, now, all of a sudden, he's not really a viable candidate anymore for elected office. And so um, there's not any data since then to know where the race is. You know, his loss of support, one, how much loss was there? And two, uh, where did it go, right? So it may be that the next time I see a poll, we're, we're in even better shape than we were before because we picked up some of Stringer's voters or maybe someone else picked them up, right? So the reason I'm sounding cautious is because something really seismic happened in the context of the campaign. And I, at the moment, there's no new data to tell us what it might mean. Um, and so anyone like me, who, you know, is really kind of on the inside of this stuff, you know, knows that, you know, just making blanket predictions without basing them on on math uh, is to behave like Donald Trump, basically. And so I'm not going to do that. So, you know, I'm, I'm hedging my bets a bit because there was a huge change and I don't have any information to tell me exactly how the voters perceive it. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, uh, thank you, Bradley, for that. And uh, yeah, be talking again soon. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Rate, review us, all that stuff. Thank you. <laughs>